1: are listening to Linux in the Hamshack. LHS is a podcast about Linux, open source, and amateur radio for everyone. Now here are your hosts, Russ, K5TUX, Cheryl, W5MOO, and Bill, NE4RD.
0: Hello and welcome. You have tuned in to episode number 434 of Linux in the Hamshack, the most terrific amateur radio podcast on the internet. And tonight we're running uh, one person short, but that's all right. It's our deep dive episode, and we are going to kind of turn back the clock a little bit on this episode and go back to the beginning, kind of like Inigo Montoya. When the job went wrong, you went back to the beginning, and that's where we're going. We're going to talk a little bit about getting boot media for your Linux distribution. And before we dive into it, we'll go ahead and introduce ourselves. I'm Russ, K5TUX. Cheryl, W5MOO, is not here.
2: Can I Bill N E4RD? So I got a frog
0: in my throat apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Just showed up too. Jumped right in. Yeah. Yeah. It was fine a few seconds ago. (laughs) That's all right. So excellent. So there was, I believe this was kind of spurned by or spurred, not spurned. Those are two totally different meaning words. Um, this was spurred by an email, right? You responded to an email about boot ISOs or generating boot Linux ISOs. Actually, we,
2: we had a couple of comments that said um, that I really enjoy your content, but it's at really such a high level right now in our series of what we're going over that is really hard for beginners to get started. So I thought we had kind of, you know, would maybe take a step back and say, well, you know, we probably have covered this before in episodes and probably just kind of pass over it as if everybody knows exactly. How to get, you know, their ISO image and, and get it either on a thumb drive or a DVD and actually get their system going. <laughs> so I thought it would probably w- be worth our time to at least touch on it in some level of detail of how you can start with a Windows computer or a Mac computer or maybe just another old installation of Linux and get yourself to uh, a, the new install. Uh, via a new ISO image. And yeah, it's surprisingly A lot of people don't know how to actually go from an ISO image to <laughs> some kind of boot media, uh, you know. So uh, I thought it was uh, it would be interesting for us to kind of revisit this very low-level, simple topic that really gets everybody started. Um, I mean,
0: yeah, if you're starting in
2: Linux, you start here. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's why we got here.
0: All right, excellent. And most people, if they're g- coming to Linux who don't already just start from some installation media they've already got will be coming from a different operating system, most likely, and most likely that would be Windows. And so the three applications we've got that we're gonna talk about are actually cross-platform. They'll run on anything, Windows, Mac, and Linux. But we're kind Except of Rufus. focusing- Rufus won't. <laughs> okay, yeah, Rufus is, is definitely a Windows-y thing. Um, but we're, we're kind of coming from the idea that you don't have Linux now, and you want to be able to boot it whether it's a live or or whatever kind of distribution this is more or less for physical machines because vms can boot an iso file directly so you don't have to have special like physical media like a dvd or a thumb drive in in a virtual machine environment so this is if you want to do an install on you know bare metal basically So the first of the applications we're going to talk about is the one that I use all the time because it's the easiest. It's super simple, but Bill can walk us uh, all through it, I guess, and it's called Rufus. I don't know why it's called Rufus. I never actually bothered to look and see if there was some reason it was called Rufus, but uh, uh, it's it's a great utility and it's super easy to use. So. How do you yeah, use I, it?
2: I I don't know. I don't know what it's called either. Why it's called that? I have used it for years and years and years. But yeah, Rufus is a utility that helps format and create bootable USB flash drives, such as uh you know keys and pen drives and memory sticks, etc. It can be especially useful for cases where uh you know you need to keep a uh, create a USB installation media from uh I don't know a bootable ISO like uh, uh Linux or or possibly even Windows. Or something that needs UEFI. Uh, You need to work on a system that doesn't have an OS to install. Um, Oh, this is another option. Sorry. You will, you know, this this is a useful case would also be to, uh, if you want to use a working system that doesn't have an OS to install on. So let's say you're doing some drive maintenance or something like that, you can go ahead and, you know, write a bootable ISO image onto a thumb drive or something like that. So you can do some drive maintenance and stuff like that. Or you want to run some low level utility, like a memory checker or something like that. That's not, uh, that's not able to run directly from the machine you're on or the boot installation that you're actually running on like windows or Mac or something like that. So it's a, it's a really cool tool, but it is only available for windows uh, and it has been available for windows for quite a while. And it uh, will definitely make any kind of disc and I believe the last time I ran it, it also has the ability to run in uh, in DD mode, um, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later. I think because it's on the list of items to talk about. So it can do a, a pure, uh, straight copy, uh, disk image to uh, to disk image without doing any extra magic. But the nice part about Rufus is, is it kind of adds a little extra magic to the whole process. <laughs> so. So it makes it real easy to uh, to get any any ISO image from any you know Arch Linux, uh, you know Fedora, what have you, actually uh, actually burnt onto a, a a thumb drive, so you can uh, you can you can boot it.
0: Yes, that's correct. You're uh, sounding very mellifluous. Maliflu- uh, screw it. <laughs> Pick a big word and it came from mellifluous. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. (laughs) Sonorous, you know, (laughs) something like that. So basically, all of these techniques start with an ISO file. So you have to go to probably a website to download said ISO file, like ubuntu.com or archlinux.org or some site. They'll have... Get Fedora.org. Get Fedora.org, right. Or or media.ne4rd.live or our homepage where you link to it. (laughs) Right. And in Windows, of course, you know, it's just gonna be a click on the, the ISO file and download it. So no no big deal there. Macintosh of course will be the same. So once you have your ISO file, you'll need to put it onto some sort of boot media, whether it be a DVD, which is kind of really old school at this point or a USB thumb drive, which is most likely what you're going to be doing nowadays. And I will say that for any modern distribution that has a full-sized ISO, you're going to want a bare minimum of a 4-gig thumb drive, but probably 8 would be safer. Yes. (laughs) And if you we, we said we weren't really going to talk about this, but I'll just mention it. You can make these actual running distros if you set up persistence. So if you want to use the thumb drive as your actual operating systems disk drive, which you probably won't, but you can. But if you're going to do that, make sure your drive is much bigger than 8 gigs, probably 64 or 128, something like that. Something on the order of an actual flash drive.
2: And if you do persistence, which, again, we're not talking about, <laughs> <laughs> buy a very expensive one <laughs> one that's, right. uh, from a reputable brand and, and has some reliability statistics behind it. Because, uh, yeah, if this is your primary drive, if you're going to use a thumb drive as your primary drive, that's not a good idea in general. It generally is bad. It's, they, they are not as good as, like, a, you know, you know a, a, an SSD or something like that that actually has... Uh, you know, oh, a longer warranty period <laughs> and some reliability statistics for having it inside of your computer constantly hashing and thrashing. Um, yeah, your thumb drives really aren't designed for that kind of stuff. So they do have limited lifespans life on reads and writes. So uh, definitely look into that if you are going to look into persistence.
0: Right. But we're going to go forth as if you're not going to do persistence and you're going to be installing the operating system on some sort of hard drive whether it be solid-state or otherwise, that's already in your machine, uh, which will most likely be larger and better built for doing persistent storage. So if you download Rufus, because that's what you would do first, well, you could do it first or second. You can download Rufus first, (laughs) or you can download the ISO first. doesn't really matter. But Rufus is an application that just sort of runs on its own. You know, you don't have to install it per se. You just double-click on it, it runs. It presents you with a really easy interface. If you already have your thumb drive inserted into the computer, it will detect it and show you that that's the target. And if you don't, you just plug your thumb drive in after you've started Rufus, and it will find it. And Rufus is just sort of a one-click thing. It wipes the thumb drive and does the install, and then it tells you it's done, and it should be bootable at that point. You do have to do one thing, and that's select the ISO file. So if you're on Windows, for example, you'll download it into your Downloads directory. You click on the uh, Boot Selection, I think is the the field. Uh, Under Boot Selection, on, on the right, there's a button that says Select. You click Select. You find your file, your ISO file. It will have already discovered your thumb drive. You can set a volume label if you like, but it's not necessary. Everything else should probably stay as default in the case of a Linux ISO. And when you've done that, click Start. Wait about fifteen minutes, and you have a bootable thumb drive. You should be able to reboot your computer at that point. And assuming your BIOS is set up to boot from USB media, it should just start happening. If uh, I, we can't really go into like every BIOS you know manufacturer, yeah, and tell you how to switch your your boot drive priority and whether or not it boots from USB media and stuff like that, any any modern BIOS will do it automatically. But sometimes you'll have to do something like press escape or F12 or something like that to get into a place where it will actually boot from a USB device. But that is computer and manufacturer independent. So just be aware of that. But anything reasonably new should just do it. you have anything else to add to that?
2: um if you do it on a mac you hold down your option key
0: (laughs) uh yes and that's That's pretty
2: standard across almost every mac
0: right if you hold down the option key until you hear the the apple bong then it will present you with all of your boot drive options and your thumb drive should be one of the listed options you click on it and away you go and you've wiped off that nasty mac os <laughs> nasty so that bsd
2: bastardization
0: as it's being used right now to record this program <laughs> so so sad yeah sad mac well at least i'm not getting a sad mac that's that's a good thing that's a good uh, sign. Yeah. <laughs> all right i didn't actually read down through your notes on Rupert, so I, have we touched everything
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, Rufus is pretty easy to use. It's pretty standard. Uh, I think uh, I used one of the other utilities before I found Rufus, so uh, we're going to talk about a couple other utilities that that you can find easily online, and we should probably just move on to the next one that basically does
0: the same thing. It does more or less the same thing. I've only used Belina Etcher once, and it was on a Mac OS to install Linux on a Mac, and it didn't work, but I think that's because of the age of my Mac. (laughs) I don't think it really had anything to do with Etcher, but I'm really not familiar with Etcher, although it does present the same sort of interface and does everything pretty much the same. I was just doing it on a Mac. So I'll let you flesh out the details on Etcher if you've got more to say about it. Yeah,
2: so Etcher, let's just run over the copy here real quick. It's a powerful OS image flasher built with web technologies. That means it's probably Electron <laughs> to ensure flashing an SD card or USB drive is pleasant and safe experience. And you know, make sure that it doesn't uh, in the drive selection segment, it doesn't uh, it doesn't select your hard drive, which is always helpful, <laughs> so you don't flash your hard drive with an ISO image, which I have done once, and it's a bit <laughs> ugly. Undoing that, <laughs> I do not recommend that at all. Um, yeah, so it protects you from accidentally writing to your hard drives, and uh, it also allows you to uh, flash Raspberry Pi uh, SD cards as well. And I think that's what I've used it probably more for. But I tend to use that, um, you know, for quite a bit of stuff. Um, in fact, I've seen some some uh, distributions actually modify etchers so it has a downloader and everything else built into it so they must allow some extensibility to uh, to the product as well um, where you can actually have it download your ISO and then burn it and then <laughs> and then uh, yeah write to your right to your, uh, right to your uh, thumb drive and stuff like that nice part about this application it is available for Windows Mac OS and Linux uh, Linux is an app image I believe there are some other direct builds as well maybe a deb and possibly a uh, rpm but uh, there's definitely an app image that works everywhere so that's really nice and it looks and operates exactly the same way in every uh, os i think i have used it even in mac os once so um yeah it's it's a kind of a, a clean it literally has like a pick your file pick your drive go flash you don't get any other options there's no advanced settings and stuff like that so it's really kind of clean and simple to use uh i don't even know what the license is on it but it doesn't really matter because you're going to use it for this one purpose and this one purpose only
0: which is to write your image right i mean that's kind of what we're talking about here anyway it's just stuff to write your image and then you're kind of done with it then you go on to the glory of having linux installed on your machine I'm going to I'm going to throw one in here that is not on our list and I'm not we're not really going to talk about it because it's kind of exactly the same as the other two we've just talked about. It's one that's been around for a while. It's associated with Pendrive Linux, which is a site that's been around a real long time. And this one is called the Universal USB Installer or UUI. Um, there'll be a link for information about it in the show notes, but again, it, it it's for Windows. It presents the same single window you know, choose a drive, choose an ISO, click, boom, away you go. <laughs> so just another one you could choose if you want to. I think, um, I think one of the things about Rufus and potentially Etcher that is better than UUI is they tend to be faster. Uh, Rufus does better direct writing to the media as opposed to things like UUI, which for some reason, they they should all kind of do the same thing there may be a verification process or something uh, i can't remember if rufus or etcher has a like post write uh verification step etcher does for sure
2: and i think it's optional in rufus
0: okay so if you're really worried about your installation media you can do a verify it will do an actual byte for byte verify of the write um, generally, I avoid that because it takes usually several times longer than the actual right to do the verify, and it's generally unnecessary. Unless you found your thumb drive under the tire of a car in the mud or something like that, then you're probably okay. So, <laughs> verify, you know, at your own behest, I guess. Oh, are you gonna, are you gonna read, or do you want me to read this no, thing about I just, you? I just...
2: I just pasted it in there. <laughs> I think you covered it uh, well enough. Um, I just added the extra copy in our show notes and a link to it. Uh, so that's already set up. And I did want to make one mention on, uh, on thumb drives. I kind of gone to uh, using a, an SD card writer as my thumb drive for just a uh, general use around the, you know, doing ISO images and stuff like that because I found it really easy <laughs> to slide the little SD cards in and, uh, write it, use it once, and then either keep it aside and do a different OS on a different SD card. That way I don't have to have tons of thumb drives around. I just have tons
0: of these little tiny micro SD cards everywhere. (laughs) I've done done that as well. I've gone to the micro SD cards and a little... You know, because the little—I don't know what you would call them, like the the interface or the dongle or whatever it is—that yeah. they're super that, tiny now. Yeah, they're they're just barely bigger. They're they're big enough to bit you know seat themselves into the USB port and big enough to slide the micro SD card in it, and then that's about it. They're basically the size of a your thumbnail. Yeah, yeah, really just cool. to make sure you don't lose them. <laughs> <laughs> so I have several. Yeah, I have several <laughs> myself. I also have one that's that's in the shape of a USB thumb drive. So it's a, it's a little bit bigger and it it actually has the card reader on the side which can do regular SD cards so you can do so you plug into the USB but the regular SD converter, you know, adapter and then the micro SD card into it. So that comes in handy sometimes too. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so that's I guess all we need to say about UUI and the last one is one that's been around a real long time which is unet booten and I know we've talked about this several times on the show, but probably in the very distant past, it's short for the Universal Netboot Installer and Netbooting. You know, did any other distros other than like Debian do Netbooting stuff where they had that minimal ISO? Yes.
2: Okay. I think that's why I started Gen 2 that way with a Netboot and a couple other ones, but this one has kind of grown away from just that. It also allows you to download the distribution in the application as well. So I think that's the the new net side of net booting. <laughs> okay, well, you go ahead and keep going then. Yeah, so you're presented with a very similar UI that almost looks like Rufus, except for it has a few extra options at the very top. You have a ability to select a distribution, and they have a quite a wide variety of distributions that you're familiar with, like Ubuntu and Linux Mint and and Debian and a bunch of other ones there that are handy. You can actually just download it directly in the application, so it'll download your ISO image. Um, has a version selector; should there be multiple versions, you could download, and then you have the. Uh, have the uh, selection of just the disk image. If you just want to do a disk image that you've already downloaded, you can select that and then uh, then it asks you how you want to actually write it and you know typically it's USB drive and, and uh, which drive letter it actually is on your Windows computer. And it also has the ability to do persistence uh, for Ubuntu only and it actually has an option to set that size if you want to set a persistence layer for your your Ubuntu uh, live installation. So uh, so that is uh, the kind of the cool things about Unetbootin. Um, if you're looking for persistence, it definitely has an easy way to do it in an in a install. So I uh, highly recommend this tool. I've, I've used it probably a million times. <laughs> yeah, and the fact it that,
0: that it does easy. allow you to download without having to go to the website first, you can pick a distribution and it will download it for you, or you can do a local ISO if you've already downloaded one. So that is a nice feature as well, as well as the ability to set up. Persistence, if you so desire it, right.
2: And it does work in Mac and Windows as, or Mac and Linux.
0: Apparently, I've never used it in Linux, but apparently it
2: does work in Linux. Um, and uh, works in Mac as well.
0: Yep, I've I've only used it on Windows as well, but it's nice to know that it crosses platforms. Yay. Um, I put in a couple of things in here for doing writes to USB thumb drives. They're actually sort of generic techniques for just writing data onto some media. But when I have a Linux installation or if I'm using Windows subsystem for Linux, these are ways that you can write an ISO to a thumb drive as well. Um, there's, there's two different ones that I have here. The first one is DD, which is just a shell utility. And I can't remember what DD stands for, but it's basically literally a utility for writing bytes in order. So the ISO file is going to be like 2.3 gigabytes or whatever of bytes. And all DD does is take every byte in order from byte zero to byte, you know, N and copies it from the original file to another file. And that file doesn't have to be a device file. So you could do a DD of something.iso to something2.iso and it would literally just copy it byte for byte. Now, there are faster ways to do this on Linux. You definitely wouldn't want to. Uh, to do that but it's an easy way to write a usb thumb drive the only thing you have to know is the device that is the thumb drive you know whether it's slash dev slash sd a b c whatever more than likely it's going to be one of those if you're if you're doing a computer that's slash dev slash h d something it's too old throw it away <laughs> 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 yeah and it's so so it, it basically copies, it's a byte copy from one file to another file. And in the case of DD, if you want to write an ISO file, the nice thing about it is if you copy, if that device file happens to be, or if that file happens to be a device file, i.e. like the SDC, um, it will create it, create the image on that device file. And that device file, of course, is a thumb drive. Um, I I mentioned um, the PV utility. It stands for packet view, I think. Maybe maybe not packet view something view oh no pipe view pipe view is what it is and what you can do is you can if you're doing something like dd it doesn't have a snazzy little progress indicator like some of these other utilities do so if you pipe the output of dd into pv it will generate a progress indicator for you so you know how far along your write to your thumb drive is and I find that particularly useful I'll actually include the specific um, commands that i use when i'm writing an iso in this way in the show notes and then there's another one called dd rescue and if you're worried about you know gpl and licensing and all that stuff dd rescue is um i can't remember if it's the fsf that does work new but it's one of those ones that conforms to all the copyleft and everything it's very safe and there's a couple of magic incantations and uh Flags you use for DD rescue and does the same thing. It takes an input file and writes to an output block device like a thumb drive. It's a GNU. It's GNU, Yeah. Okay.
2: And you can get a progress indicator in DD nowadays with a, a status equals progress on the end of your command line, so you can actually see
0: what it's doing. Because that was always a fun thing. Is like, I wonder what it's doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just put it mine here. Let's see. If equals ISO file. That's another way to do it. I I don't. I haven't looked at the or status equals progress, so I don't know how pretty that status indicator is. Uh, but the PV one is pretty cool, and it's also a little more portable because it's not. It will it will show the progress of any pipe, not not just DD. So DD's oh, DD is useful for DD. Yeah. So yeah.
2: Sometimes you do have to worry about block size too when you're using DD. So pay attention to uh, uh, the DD instructions that you see at the. Uh, the uh, uh, Linux distributions instructions. So uh, yeah, apparently I'm not very loud (laughs) in the stream. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, so yeah, the block size is important. And I know of at least one distribution that's really whiny if you do not use DD, and that's Solus. Um, For some reason, they do require the use of DD to write your image. So uh, you definitely want to uh, follow the instructions if you're into using Solus. Um, and you want to burn that onto uh, a a USB stick from Linux or something like that.
0: Very good. So do we have anything else to say about creating bootable ISOs?
2: Not really. I mean, uh, the days of uh, computers having disk drives and stuff like that are pretty much gone. (laughs) Um, I think I still have one computer here that actually has a DVD drive in it. So that's why you don't see uh, many people talking about making... Uh, DVD images out of stuff plus these uh, these ISO creators have uh, gotten really large and fat with their <laughs> with their installation media exceeding the sizes of uh, of uh, DVds at least uh, you know generic DVDs until you can like multi-layer and so on and so forth so uh, yeah the easiest way nowadays to get uh, your boot installation going is on is on uh, a thumb drive and that's why we're talking about it as if that's the only way because in general it feels like it really is
0: well a dvd can hold 4.7 gigabytes of raw data so you're going to get some less than that when you're writing out an iso file and that's probably good enough for a lot of distributions but certainly not all and the other thing is optical media runs way slower (laughs) than a thumb drive or an sd card so you're going to see a major performance hit if a dvd is is your only option and you'd have to go back a ways into the, the Debian verse if you wanted to get into CD media because they haven't been, you haven't been able to boot from a CD per, for some time.
2: Oh, yeah. That's what, 720 megs or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> tiny.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're looking at a DVD. Man, if you're looking at a DVD, don't look at a DVD. You know, USB boot drive. It's, uh, or USB thumb drive. That's the way you want to go for sure. All right. Oh, cool. So. If, uh, if anybody has any specific questions or if you have you know, checked out the show notes and think we've missed a step or don't have all the information handy, please send us some email and we'll respond to you and let you know um, if there's something we missed. Although, I mean, these, the whole point of these ISO creators is to make the process very simple. So as long as you know where to download the ISO from and as long as you've got a thumb drive handy, uh, any of these should make the process really, really simple for getting started with Linux. I think that's all I got to say about it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a pretty good
2: coverage. I mean, yeah, if you if you have issues and want more information or have something else to say, definitely send us a, a line at uh, info.lhspodcast.info or send us a voicemail at what? <laughs>
0: 1909-547-7469, <laughs> which is 1909-LHS-SHOW on your touchstone keypad. We do have a question. Darren actually has a question. Yeah. Yeah. How how can I tell which thumb drives will not work as a boot disk? They will all work as a boot disk because it has to do with how the data is written to the thumb drive. So they'll all work as long as they're big enough. That's really the only caveat. So,
2: well, the other one is that your system has to allow you to be able to boot. To boot. Right. (laughs) USB thumb drive. (laughs) And that's where you knowing your computer and how to uh, get into the boot sequence which a lot of computers nowadays are like you hit F12 and it gets you to a one-time boot menu. Uh, Some are more complicated than that. Um, But yeah, that's your mileage may vary as soon as that comes to fruition.
0: Yeah. we we touched on that earlier in the, in the program, you definitely have to know your BIOS a little bit and you have to know if your computer can boot the media, but if it can one way or the other, whether it's automatic or whether it's something you have to get into a boot menu for, then the media itself shouldn't make any difference they're all they're all the same i mean they're just raw raw repositories for data so it used to be that windows like if you wanted to create a windows boot media stick you had to go well you still kind of have to still go through a special process because of creating the master boot record and all that kind of stuff but these iso creators do all that stuff for you hopefully that answered the question <laughs> he's typing he's typing yeah yeah <laughs> In the meantime, we should probably move on to our feedback because we do have some feedback. Oh, let's see. My daughter's computer is fussy with some sticks. Thought it was the stick that is the issue. It, I, I can't imagine it's the stick unless there is something physically wrong with the stick. If you, if you write an ISO file to it and do a verify to make sure that the write is correct, it should work.
2: There's, there's one more thing. If your computer is old enough, to have USB 2.0 and USB 3.0 ports on it. Generally, it only likes booting off of the USB 2.0 ports. <laughs> this was common in some of the older Dell units and stuff like that. Um, so if you have a mixture of ports, you might want to look at uh, where you're plugging it in at because it might not always be the one you think it can plug into. Um, and that, again, that's very computer-specific and uh, you know i have a computer here that actually has that problem so i always remember it's on the left side of the computer i plug it into not the right side otherwise the right side it doesn't see it at all
0: yeah i have an hp laptop actually a couple of hp laptops that only like to boot off of one port they're all usb2 but only one of them is set up to read at boot time so that may be another caveat and you know at a glance usb3 and up um ports are blue if you look at them and the older ones are black. So that, that gives you a, you know, a visual representation of which ports might be valid for booting from. All right. So on to announcements and feedback. I didn't put any announcements in here because I don't think there are any, but we do have some feedback. I got an email uh, a little while ago, um, a week and a half ago, I think from HyFlex seven. No, no names or call signs or anything, but apparently they're a long time listener. Uh, Who said, getting error on today's episode via the RSS feed, couldn't connect to server, bsmarchive.info, trace route makes it to the machine just fine. Whatever process is listening on port 443 must be borked, 73V, whoever V is. (laughs) Um, I did some investigation into this, and what it turned out to be was the intermediate certificate in the certificate chain for bsmarchive.info had expired. So it was failing verification. And so any feed readers that were downloading an SSL version of the file were complaining. So I got that fixed like within a few hours. So hopefully people didn't really notice that. I hate when that happens because cause I mean that was that that wasn't even my fault. It's like nothing I could do about that. I didn't even realize that the I'm not even sure if it was an expiration or a revocation, but something something in the let's encrypt certificate chain went away so i had to fix that all right and i guess i'll touch on this next one we we might both have something to say about this there's a comment on the linux and hashtag website from bob k0 t-a-z he says hi guys i'm a long time ham new to linux i just installed ubuntu on my pc along with windows 10 i installed fl digi x cqr log and fl rig i use an ic7610 with hrd as rig control presumably under Windows, because it doesn't run under Linux anymore. Uh, so my question is, do I use FLRig to control the rig, or use HRD? Well, I just sort of answered that question. Uh, you have to use FLRig or something like it, because HRD doesn't run on Linux. And what are the settings for FLDigi and WSJTX using the 7610? I've watched too many vids on setting up Linux for ham radio, then I found you guys, you make more sense. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, we're doing it wrong <laughs> <laughs> still way over my head but getting there hi hi i think i have loaded too much in ubuntu should have done vm to practice first hi hi any ideas where to start any help would be appreciated seven three bob so i did answer him briefly i mentioned that you, you would have to use fl rig or something similar to do rig control uh, because of the lack of support for hrd and linux and sounds like he's got a dual boot system, so obviously he can't do both at the same time. Unless he's got a VM environment, which he clearly could have, but apparently doesn't. And he also wants to know like what the settings would be for an IC7610. I would think an FL-Rig would be slash dev slash TTY USB 0 because it presents its own USB devices, probably two of them. Um, yes, one with for the sound, digital, one
2: for a rig control, yeah.
0: Right. So it's either going to be slash dev slash TTY USB 0 or USB 1, uh, whichever one it chooses for rig control and audio. The, the It's a 9600 8N1 by default on ICOM rigs. And I also mentioned to him about WFU because WFU will work really well with an IC7610 because that's one of the newer ones with the pan adapter and all that. Oh, yeah, and, sure.
2: Yeah.
0: And WFU, I can't, is it? Is it? going to it's going to integrate with rig control d right i think or does
2: yeah i think it has an ability for you to connect something else to it um i haven't used it since we started talking about it but i was going to circle back and look at it again but i believe that's the idea that it could be used as a pass-through so it becomes the uh, rig control server for everything else that needs to talk to the rig
0: right and i i mean i don't want to go into like that too in depth of, but even if you're not using it for rig control specifically wfu will give you a nice on-screen view of your 7610 even if you're using fl rig or just going into ham live using rig control or rig control v directly to control the 7610 that's a real basic overview so if you have any additional <laughs> questions and it, you know i did i did outline the ports and the port parameters yeah, there is yeah I mean, when you
2: select the 7610, uh, because it should show up like you select your rig first, so you tell it it's an IC 7610 in uh, FL rig, and then the uh, the device pop down, a drop down should have all your enumerated uh, serial devices, and it should also show the ones by ID, so it'll look like one that is, you know, slash dev by ID, blah blah blah, something, something, something. Um, but it'll be very specific to your rig. And that's really the one you want to use. You don't want to have to try to guess whether it's TTSY1 or S0 or S2 or whatever. Um, it should have a buy ID one. And then when you go into FL Digi or WSJTX, you just tell it that it's using FL Rig. And then it learns from FL Rig where your rig is. So you don't have to really do anything extra. So in WSJTX, you would just say, my rig control is FL Rig. And that's it. And that uh, should just start working.
0: And I don't know... if like on iCom rigs have the CIV.
2: Yeah, if you've messed with that, it won't be default. But if you haven't messed with it, it should be the default, which is something like 91H or something like that. I think
0: it's 88H is uh, the default for CIV. So. Okay. Yeah,
2: something like that. But it should be default. You shouldn't uh, yep. unless you know you've messed with it. <laughs> it should be the default. <laughs> right. And if you know you messed with it, and maybe got into a little trouble there. You can always re- reset the uh, th- those settings in your uh, in your rig itself.
0: All right. Yeah. So if you have any additional questions, you've already emailed me a couple of times. Uh, so feel free to, well, actually, I think it was a message on Facebook, but
2: yeah, yeah that's right.
0: So if you uh, have any additional questions or need additional help with getting that set up, please let us know and we'll do what we can to help. And thanks for writing it. Bob K0TAZ. And Bill, this is a comment on your YouTube video. So we'll go ahead and let you address this one.
2: Yeah, Ken here. Uh, W6BZY has left a few comments on our YouTube channel and I've tried to answer them all there, but uh, we'll go ahead and uh, just touch on two of his questions that he popped in there. Uh the first one was Fedora is probably not a good choice for hams who got started on the Raspberry Pi. And that's possibly true cuz they're probably used to Raspbian, which of course is, you know, Debian, which is Ubuntu friendly and everything else. Uh being a testing ground for Red Hat and a different package manager makes for issues. Uh yeah, yeah. It's a little different. I had to add myself to the dial group. Haven't had to do that in a while. Well, you do have to do that in Linux, <laughs> for sure. Um, on the other hand, Arch uses yet another package manager, the AUR and new problems. Yeah, and it doesn't have a dial group. It uses a UUID or something like that, or UUCD or something. <laughs> it's a totally different U-U-C-P group you have to probably. be part of. probably. Yeah, UUCP. Yeah, UUCP is the group for that. So you need to add yourself to that group for uh, for Arch. Uh, you were lucky with setting up CQR log if you have tried to create a new log, you would have found it does not work and hasn't ha- hasn't for the past couple of months. I've notified the maintainer and he's working for upstream help. I would like to that it if you focused more on how you do things so your videos, So your videos can help us learn to use Linux in the ham shack. Okay. That's what I'm trying to do. Uh, I enjoy the podcast, but I'm a very visual learner. So videos are better for me. You got me started three years ago using Linux in my shack. Well, that, that's awesome. That's awesome. And yeah, we're trying to, trying to make the videos so that they're, they show all the steps, uh, along the way. And I think the Fedora video showed the most steps. Um, but I didn't show, you know, creating a new log I actually just imported my old log by copying the dot config slash cqr log directly directly in to my uh, my user profile and of course it just worked from scratch but I will be doing a, a a refreshed a new video that shows specifically that and we'll see if we can reproduce it in uh, in uh, Fedora and Arch and maybe Ubuntu just to kind of show the ways to get around that and most of it has to do with the fact that if you if you don't get MariaDB installed first uh, it tends to not work right. Um, somehow the MySQL server just makes things icky and ugly for <laughs> for the installation of CQR log. So uh, I'll try to address that in a video for you as well but I have answered you on the uh, on the YouTube channel so hopefully uh, hopefully you'll get back to me there or uh, some other means of getting back to us here maybe join the Discord channel and we can uh, help you more interactively. And as well he left a comment that he just installed manjaro gnome uh, and cQR log bin from the aur and then he asked how do I open an existing file which I just kind of told you if you had an existing file in your uh dot config slash cqr log directory from another installation you can definitely use that whole directory and just bring it all in <laughs> from uh from uh, from a previous install a working installation and everything should just work. Um, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back around and I'll take a look at doing uh, creating a new log inside of those environments uh, so we can have a record of it working or not working and possibly me working around it not working. So uh, I think that'll be very helpful for you and others that are in the same predicament with uh, CQR log. All right. Very
0: good. Well, that brings us down to the end of the feedback and therefore the end of the show. So I want to thank everybody who was listening to us live, even though we're recording at an odd time and day. But we did have a couple of listeners. We had Tony, K4XSS, and we had Darren, VK60K. And apparently, according to the Icecast stream, there were a couple of people listening over there as well. We don't know who they are, but thanks for tuning in. And this has been the deep dive into making a bootable ISO to get your Linux system up and running. We hope it was least a little entertaining and definitely educational and don't forget to send us email at info at lhspodcast.info or leave us a voicemail at 909-547-7469 if you have any questions or comments or follow-ups to this episode and with that we'll go ahead and get on out of here and the next one we do is the weekender so make sure to tune in for that you're into weekendery type stuff and in the meantime have a great week and we'll catch you for the next one. This has been episode number 434 of Linux in the Hamshack. For the On assignment Cheryl W5MOO, I'm Russ K5TUX. And I'm Bill NE4RD73.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Linux in the Shack. LHS is a community-sponsored podcast. The show is recorded live every Thursday at 8pm Central Time, plus or minus QRL. Connect to the live stream at urlbctsinfo Live. Our website is located at lhspodcast.info. You can support the podcast by visiting the LHS Patreon page, at patreon.com stroke LHS podcast, or by using the contribute list on the homepage. Get in touch via social media. We have a presence on Discord, Facebook, IRC, Twitter, and YouTube. Our IRC channel is hash podcast on the Freenode network, and the Discord invite link is url.bcts.info stroke Discord. You can also drop us an email at info at LHSpodcast.info or leave us a voicemail at 1909 LHS Show. That's 909 547-7469. Visit the online LHS merchandise store at shop.lhspodcast.info for fun and fashionable show themed merchandise. Become an ambassador